Well, aloha, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, live from Maui, Hawaii. My name is Michael Benner, your host, and today we are going to present the second class in a seven-part series on the Kabbalion, K-Y-B-A-L-I-O-N. Not to be confused with Jewish mysticism, often known as the Kabbalah, spelled with a C or a K or sometimes a Q. Kabbalah is very different, although it has its roots in Hermeticism, ancient Egyptian mystical teachings and philosophies. But the Kabbalion is a book written anonymously. The author is simply the three initiates in 1908. Perhaps it was written by William Atkinson, the great New Thought writer, very prolific writer from the turn of the century. Um, that is 19th and the 20th century. And uh, others say that one of the three, or maybe the sole author, if not William Walker Atkinson, was Paul Foster Case, the founder of Builders of the Adidam, or Builders of the Adidam, BOTA, B-O-T-A, BOTA.org. That organization is still doing correspondence classes. They have small offices in Los Angeles, um, a philosophy that is rooted in tarot and also Kabbalah. Paul Foster Case was a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn, along with people like uh, William Butler Yates, um, Evelyn Underhill, Israel Regardi, uh, of course, uh, Alistair Crowley as well. Dion Fortune, you may know some of these names, The Order of the Golden Dawn. Was it Paul Foster Case? Was it William Walker Atkinson, the New Thought writer? Not sure. Uh, it's likely it was one or the other or both of these two men. But we may never know for sure. We just know the book is available and it's free. You can go to kabalian.org on the Internet and download a free PDF of the entire book. It's not thick, it's not long, it is a bit pithy, and if you're a beginning or intermediate student in the field of mysticism, you're probably going to need a class like this to help you wade through it. But if you stay with it, if you ponder it and reflect upon it, you're going to find that it really can crack the code for you and open up for you a better understanding of mysticism in all traditions, whether it's the ancient Egyptian and Greek, or the Jewish mysticism of the Kabbalah and the Zohar, Christian mysticism, as in Rosicrucianism and the inner circles of Freemasonry, uh, Sufism, the mysticism of Islam, or the Eastern philosophies of Buddhism, Taoism, and uh, many forms of Hinduism and, and shamanism as well. Uh, the ancient pagan philosophies were largely mystic. And today we're going to talk about the second of the seven principles, which is the principle of correspondence. Last week, you can check the archives if you missed it, 
we did the first class on the initial principle, all is mind. The principle of mentalism was the first of the seven classes. Everything is mind. We exist in a material world that the ancients say is a, ref- and by the way, there's a lot of quantum physics and new empirical science that is affirming and confirming this view, that energy and mass, or spirit and the material world, are two forms of the same thing. Einstein put an equal sign between energy and mass at the speed of light squared. So we believe that we know, whether from a mystical point of view or a hard science point of view, that the entire universe is made up of two things, energy and matter. And that there are physical energies, but there are also spiritual energies. In a coming class, we'll talk about the principle of vibration, that everything vibrates and oscillates. We'll also talk in coming weeks about polarity and gender and rhythm. This is a wonderful opening, as I say, to mysticism and metaphysics. So with the class on mentalism, the idea that we exist as the spiritual imaginings of some great source, some God, some absolute, if not a being, certainly a presence. But there is also this material world, and there is a correspondence. And that's our class today, the principle of correspondence, the second principle of the seven hermetic keys. The principle of correspondence is essentially contained in the writings of Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus, simply Hermes the Great, the greatest of the great, a legendary teacher of the Egyptians from time out of mind, perhaps 5,000 years ago, in Egypt's oldest known dynasty. This would be almost 2,000 years before Moses, in the time, some say, of Abraham, the very dawn of civilization. There was a teacher in Egypt named Hermes, and he was made a god. He was so revered that He was included later in the Greek pantheon of gods as Hermes. I mentioned this last week. It bears repeating. The uh, Romans included him in their pantheon of gods as well, only they referred to him as Mercury. In both cases, you've seen the image of, well, the FTD guy, for example, with the wings on his feet and the wings on his cap and usually carrying a caduceus, a scepter that represents the spine, the chakra system, the caduceus or the scepter is also the shishumna that, like the spine, continues up through the top of the head, connecting us to the oversoul, 
on its own plane above and free of form. You have the two snakes winding its way up the caduceus, the Ida and Pingala, which are the polarities of Kundalini, or the life force, the Holy Spirit, the Alam Vital, the Chi or the Ki, the Kundalini, the Prana. There are many names for the energy or the life force, the love and the light that has its source in spirit and yet manifests itself as the physical world, as you, your body, and all the forms around you. In this second hermetic principle, the principle of correspondence, we're told that there is a correspondence between the above and the below. And in this emerald tablet of Hermes Trismegistus, the thrice great, the three times great Hermes, there was in fact actually a green, large, some say it was actually an emerald stone or a green stone of some sort, that ancient Greeks, such as Plato and Socrates, claimed to have actually seen. It was destroyed in the plundering of the library in Alexandria by the Romans on one of the two occasions that the library was burned, and um, that was a tragic loss, but fortunately we have the translation. What is interesting about the Emerald Tablet is that the laws or principles, somewhere between 13 and 15, depending on how you divide it up, were not carved into the stone, but stood out from the stone in bas-relief, carving away everything but the letters, if you will. And that those letters were in red, appeared standing out from the stone in red on this green stone. It must have been quite remarkable. Because of the ruby-red color of these laws or principles, I've already told you where the word hermetic and hermetically sealed came from. Well, here we have the origin of the word rubric, which means law. It's not a commonly used word, but you may have heard, especially if you know lawyers, they talk about a rubric. Ruby, red, the law in red. That's where it comes from, the emerald stone of Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus. Must have been quite a remarkable thing to see. The second rubric, the second law on the emerald tablet is known as the law of correspondence our lesson today. Said simply, it's as above, so below. And as below, so it is above to accomplish the miracles of the only thing. I thought it was interesting, and I put in the newsletter, that among the many translations of the Emerald Tablet over the years, perhaps the best known is by Sir Isaac Newton, and his works on alchemy consumed the bulk of the latter years of his life and yet were literally burned and destroyed like the Emerald Tablet itself by the Christian scientists 
that discovered his secret work and secret alchemical experiments after his death. And so when you study Isaac Newton, it's not likely you're going to come across the fact that he was primarily an alchemist and was fascinated in the concepts of transmutation. Because his experiments were so secretive, many people have suggested that Newton may have actually succeeded in his experiments in transmuting base lead into gold. However, from a philosophical point of view, I must tell you it's much more likely that Newton understood the allegory as many of his contemporaries and philosophers and mystics even today understand the allegory of lead into gold as being a parallel or a, uh, a metaphor for transmuting or uplifting or redeeming consciousness from the leaden appearance of things to a more golden understanding of the source behind the appearance of things to like Toto in in uh, not Alice in Wonderland in the Wizard of Oz like Toto pulling back the curtain to render the veils of illusion and when you look at the material thing to conceive of its spiritual source would be to have the conscious awareness of uh, one who recognizes their ability then to transmute all things and to turn water into wine or turn lead into gold or also the yeast that raises leavened bread is often portrayed in this same metaphor or same allegory as a kind of redemption or uplifting from the gross and crude appearance of things and no further where most of humanity is stuck you know if I can't see it and I can't put my hands on it and get a grip, then it must not exist. So that's why people have a problem understanding the dangers of nuclear or atomic radiation, for example. Uh, yeah, sure, give me some more x-rays. What difference does it make? I can't feel it. I can't see it. I can't hear it. I can't touch it. So it must not exist. But don't stay out in the sun too long. You might get a bad burn <laughs> that develops into cancer. Uh, this is part of the blindness of the human being at this stage of our evolution, anyway. So you can read more about Newton. There's a great book by a researcher named Michael White that came out about, oh, I think it was 95, 1995 or so, called The Last Sorcerer, the story of Sir Isaac Newton. And you may want to check that out if you're interested in such things. Newton is often revered as a great scientist, the inventor of calculus, and he was that, a great empirical scientist. Newton's laws of motion, the, the laws that stood up until Einstein's theories of relativity. And even then, Einstein didn't prove Newton was wrong, just that he was incomplete. 
that when you approach the speed of light with very small particles, the physics changes a little bit. But for large objects moving at relatively slow speeds, Newton works just fine. You know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, and an object in motion tends to stay in motion. An object at rest tends to stay at rest. These are Newton's principles, and as I said, he basically invented calculus. Pretty bright guy to spend the bulk of his latter years studying alchemy. Okay, so um, the principle of correspondence is the second rubric of the Emerald Tablet. As above, so it is below. As things are here, below, so they are above. This is really the idea that the best way to know God, if you will, not as a being, but a state of consciousness, we really create a problem for ourselves if we think of divinity as a human being. This is another area where humanity deliberately shackles itself with ignorance by visualizing spirit not as a magnetic field, or an ocean of consciousness, but as a being with a form. If you if you ask even a, a Christian minister or Catholic priest with a little bit of training, is God a being? They'll say, well, no, not really. We just sort of use that and references to he and the father and the son to make it easy for people, but no, God is not really a being, okay? Um, or certainly not a being of form, if you will, a man on a cloud with hands and feet and eyeballs and a beard. I think many people who call themselves atheists or agnostics are just people who see religion as kindergarten or elementary school because these rich metaphors and allegories are taken so literally that we are made in the image of God doesn't allow us to make God in our image, and yet there is a correspondence. What does that mean, to be in the image of the Creator? What does it mean to be a creative being? What does it mean that our free will is a subset or a unit of divine will, that our love is a unit or a subset of divine love, that our conscious awareness is a unit of the totality of the whole. You have to get beyond thinking of God or the most divine being or the totality, as the ancient Egyptians would say, the one life, the one thing, as being a separate being, way far away. I mean, separated from you and living very far away. And religion will hint at this at times when it suggests that God is everywhere. But that's sort of like Santa Claus, isn't it? Like, how could he get to every house in one night? This, this I think, is why many people call themselves atheists even though in their hearts they feel the love and they feel the longing 
of divinity. They they feel that connection. They just don't know what to do with it because religion has been presented to them in such an elementary and childish way. So we have to improve upon the metaphor and help people understand that this is poetry, that the great scriptures, the truths that are found in, in the scriptures of all the religions are poetry. It's allegory. There's even a place in the New Testament for the Christians in, the, in our uh, class today where Christ explains why he uses parables. He said, if I, if I just laid it out for you, you wouldn't understand. So I have to teach in parables, like if you had as much faith as this mustard seed, you could tell the mountain to go from here to there, and your faith would move mountains. Really? <laughs> you don't see the metaphor in that? Well, so many Christians would yield and say, well, of course, that's a parable. Yeah, that's just allegory. I get that. But what about this walking on water stuff? He really did walk on, well, okay. Or the fishes and the loaves. Well, maybe. But does it really matter? Isn't the important thing that you get the lesson? What is walking on water really all about? We'll get into it in detail in another class. We've talked about it in the past. It's about calming the emotional nature. When you walk on water, you can see into the water and also see what's reflected on the surface of the water. You can understand your emotions and use them as a portal to understanding your higher self, your soul. So, to make a case for the metaphor or the allegory, what does it mean, as above, so below, this second law, principle, or rubric? It's, it's the second principle of the Emerald Tablet, which has 13 to 15 key concepts on it, it's also the second principle of the seven keys to hermetic wisdom in the Kabbalion. I don't think that's an accident either. As above, so below. And as it is below, so it is above to accomplish the miracles of the one thing. If we are in the image of the Creator, perhaps that means we have the ability to create our reality. Now, today this is popularly understood as the law of attraction, but this was taught certainly by Christ in the phrase, you reap what you sow. There's that mustard seed, life as a garden allegory again, a very good allegory, a very rich allegory. If you are negative and cynical and, and hostile to others, it's like getting down and carefully planting weeds and briars and brambles. And, of course, those negative thoughts and the negative feelings are going to be part of what you harvest in your life. A negative expectation will create negative karma. Not as punishment, not because you're bad, but simply because that's the law. What you put out, you get back what goes around comes around. In other words, not only is there a correspondence between spirit and matter, 
there is a correspondence between the inner and the outer. We could say, not only as above, so below, and vice versa, but, but we could also say as within, so it is without. And as things are out here in the world of appearances, so they are in here, in your heart, in your mind, in your soul or spiritual nature. You find some references to this in George Harrison, within you and without you. Magnificent, magnificent song. If you play it enough times and ponder it, meditate while you listen to it over and over again, especially in the context of other songs written by George Harrison, you begin to get a sense of what he's trying to say. Really beautiful concept. So as above, so below, and it's obverse, is the same as what's in your heart is what's going to manifest out into the world. And the way you perceive the world is going to have an effect on your conscious awareness as well. Now, here's the important thing to understand. Ready yourself. Note takers, pick up your pens <laughs> and your pencils. Here we go. If there is an above and a below, and a correspondence between the two, if there is an inner and an outer, and a correspondence between the two, it suggests a middle. It suggests a medium. And indeed, this is, it turns out, a reference to the trinity, the threeness of things. Now, the simple example is the bar magnet which has its polarities, which would seem to be opposites, the North Pole and the South Pole, a yin and a yang. But just like the symbol of Taoism has the black interconnecting with the white, they are distinct and seemingly at first glance opposite polarities, but notice in the symbol there's a dot of the opposite in each suggesting that while they play a complementary role, these are not opposites, the polarities of a bar magnet or the yin and the yang that we're talking about in a, a dualistic universe, at least the appearance of the world is dualistic. Consciousness, of course, is non-dual or holistic. But because of the third element, which really stands as number two in the middle. The third element is the middle element. It's one, three, two. That's the magnetic field around the bar magnet. That corresponds to the soul, to consciousness, to capital L, love, above and free of form, the love and the light of the soul, the consciousness of the spiritual being standing between the source of spirit, God, the father aspect, if you will, father, mother, all that is, but father in that it is causative to the matter, the mother, mater, the material world, 
at the other end of the bar magnet. And so there is no place on the magnet or around the magnet that is not, in a relative sense, both poles. It's always a matter of how much positive and how much negative in this magnetic field. There is no place in the magnetic field around the bar magnet, on the magnet, next to the magnet, radiating out from the magnet, above the magnet, below the magnet. <laughs> there is no place in this electromagnetic field that does not contain the influences of both poles. And in this case, we're talking about the as above, so below. The poles are spirit and matter. Or what energy, or what, what, what Einstein called energy and mass. Same thing. Einstein said they're convertible. That the only thing you have going in the universe is energy and mass. He meant physical energy and physical mass. But we're saying there are spiritual, non-physical energies as well. Very highly refined vibration that stands behind the physical energies and the physical mass as well. So we can take E equals MC squared and see how it's really a manifestation of a much more ancient principle that was taught in the mystery schools of Europe and Africa and Asia and the Middle East in ancient times, long before magnetism and its relationship to electricity was even known. Only they used gender, father and mother, and we'll talk about the principles of polarity and rhythm and vibration and gender in the upcoming programs here as we do all seven parts of the Kabbalion. We're going to flesh this whole idea out. So you might as well get familiar with the concept of a simple bar magnet and the middle third element, the magnetic field, as allegory. You've got to take this as metaphor as a parallel, right? It's like, <laughs> all right? That means that if there is an above and a below, as I've said, it's suggesting a middle point. You know, besides the magnetic field, when I think of the Trinity, a few other allegories and models come to mind. One is... Uh, a magnifying glass or a lens, whether it's in a pair of binoculars or a microscope or a telescope um, or a magnifying glass. Just think of a simple magnifying glass. There is the above, the sun, the light coming through the magnifying glass, at which point the light is reversed and the light can either, with the magnifying glass, depending on how you adjust it, be focused into a pinpoint of light or used to allow the eye to see a magnified version, again, by taking advantage of the way in which the reflected light is 
changed by the curvature of the lens. So now you're looking through the magnifying glass, and if you adjust it a little forward, a little back, oh, there we go, it magnifies or enlarges, it distorts, and allows you to see an uh, amplified, extended, expanded version of what you're looking at. It's now, quote, magnified. Look at the word. Magnetic, magnify, right? To amplify, to make bigger in this case. Or if you readjust the lens, that same magnifying glass in a different position, a different relationship to the material world will not magnify but focus the sunlight to a pinpoint such that you could actually start a little fire, and you probably did that as a kid, the burn holes in paper or start leaves on fire, or I guess some kids torture bugs that way too. That middle element, the magnifying glass, is where the power is. It's where the mysteries are. The mysteries are always in the middle of the Trinity. The Son in the Christian Trinity, Jesus, is in the middle between the Father aspect and what's called the Holy Spirit, but obviously is the Mother aspect. I mean, Father, Son, what's missing? The Mother, the Mater. Why do they call it Holy Spirit? Does that mean the Son is not Holy Spirit or the Father is not Holy Spirit? No, the whole thing is Holy Spirit, obviously. But the early church, and even today, obviously, wants women out of the picture. This is patriarchy. So they pull the feminine nature out for fear of the woman's power. This goes back to the church and witch burnings, and even today the church refuses, and it's not just Catholics and Christians. You see this in in the Jewish religion. You see it in Islam. Uh, you see it in some Eastern religions. Buddhism is particularly unique in this regard in that they've always honored women as being the same as men in terms of their spiritual potential. Even 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, when the Buddha first taught, women were revered in the same way that men were revered as sons and daughters, as children of the Most High. So the mysteries in the middle, the secrets in the center, it's this third element that stands as number two, where all the power is. And when we talk about the principle of correspondence, it's not just the above and the below. It's the trinity. It's the three that we have to begin to discuss to crack the code, the secret of it all. This is so powerful, and I invite you to visit an article on my website at theagelesswisdom.com. Remember the T-H-E, theagelesswisdom.com. Click on Enter to go inside, and then instead of clicking on Webinars, go to the Articles, and you'll find an article on the Trinity, on the threeness of things. And check that out. There's a big grid in there of about 45, maybe 50 examples of the Trinity as 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as God, soul, and man as, gosh, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, uh, Sat, Chit, Ananda, um, uh, you, you really got to look at it. It's quite amazing. You not only read them across, one, two, and three, but look down the one column, look down the two column, <laughs> and look down the three column. You'll see source in the one column, and the result, the manifestation or reflection of the source in the three column, and in the middle is the mystery or the secret. That's where the Christos is. That's the soul. That's the consciousness. That's the, the so-called mental plane between spirit and matter. Now, in the Kabbalion, they talk about the three great planes as the, from the bottom up, the material plane, the middle being the great mental plane, and then the top aspect of the Trinity being the spiritual plane. These are not places or destinations or places that you go. These are states of existence vibratory levels, degrees of consciousness, if you will, states of vibration, frequencies. The material and the spiritual with the great mental plane in the middle. Now, the way I was taught this grand trinity, and there are smaller trinities within the great trinity, just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or... God, soul, and man, have a lower correspondence in man, the mental, emotional, and physical, is obviously a lower correspondence of the divine trinity. Catholics are never told this, but it's implied in touching their forehead when they make the sign of the cross and saying, I touch my forehead, my mind, in the name of the Father the divine will. I then touch my heart in the name of the Son, divine love. That's what Christ represents, the soul. And I touch my shoulders in the name of the Holy Spirit, or the mother, the mater, the material world. My shoulders are my physical body, the physical form. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God, soul, and man. Father, Son, and Mother Nature. Okay. That's the lower correspondence of the Divine Trinity in man, the mental, emotional, and physical. That's so rich and so beautiful. How, how could it be that people go through this ritual making the sign of the cross and no, nobody ever points out this very simple correspondence? There is a God in you. You are in the image of that divinity. So what are you going to do with yourself? What are you going to do with the free will that you've been given, with the love aspect that you share with the one life? Are you going to use it to focus only on the separated self, opposing that which is not you? 
struggling, fighting, competing? Or are you going to honor that there is but one thing at work? There's just one of us here, one mind, one heart, one consciousness, one body, really. The universe, una, <laughs> the one verse. And even if there are multiverses, it still would have to be part of one thing in a metaphysical sense, right? You've got to understand the Trinity to understand the polarities. And the law of correspondence begs a discussion of the threeness of things. I learned it not material plane, mental plane, above and free form, the plane of the soul, and the spiritual plane, the way I learned it was matter, consciousness, and spirit, which in metaphysics is sometimes called the causative triangle or the causative trinity or the trinity of manifestation. From the top down, spirit, consciousness, matter. The consciousness, the soul, the grand mental plane between spirit and matter is the magnifying glass. It's the telescope, it's the microscope, it's the soul between God and man. But again, you can see how this has been corrupted, how the church decided in the West to steal the idea of the oversoul, pull it out of there, and say, no, your soul, you're not a reflection or an extension of the soul. Your soul was manufactured by God upon conception. This is why we have all these debates about divorce, about uh, abortion, the Freudian slip, about divorce too. What are we divorcing ourselves from? The idea that your soul is already in heaven, of course, is the greatest heresy of all. This is the grand secret, the search for the grail. You know, Jason and the Golden Fleece, all of these mystery traditions, these magical mystery searches, the magical mystery tour, <laughs> is a search for the oversoul. Oh, where is my soul? Where is my true, eternal, and infinite essence? Because my self manifested in this separate body, this flesh prison, this soul cage is very finite and very mortal and prone to aging. But of course, consciousness, the truth of who you are, never ages. That's why no matter how old you are, you still feel the same way. You know, people say, well, I still feel 19 or 25 or <laughs> I, I still feel the way I felt as a young person. Well, of course, because your consciousness is eternal. It doesn't age. It can grow. It can evolve. It can unfold. It can indeed expand and embrace ever greater understanding. But it doesn't age. And it certainly doesn't die. That's the part of you that you can take with you. Where do you go when you die? No place. You just cease the extension out into the material world. The soul abstracts itself, pulls itself back from the physical form. 
but this is a grand heresy. Millions, literally millions of people have been waterboarded, tortured in other ways, uh, uh, decapitated, head put on pikes, murdered, burned at the stake, pilloried for teaching what I just said. So dangerous to the political arm of church and temple and synagogue. So dangerous is this concept that it's been defiled and pulled from religion. So that the soul is a part of you and you serve the church and the church serves God on your behalf rather than the church serving you and you serve your oversoul which shares, as Plato said, the ground of God. You've got to understand the Trinity. Very important to get a sense of the threeness of things. And the third element that stands as number two, which is the soul, the consciousness, above and free of form on its own plane, occupying a place between spirit and matter between God and man, between heaven and earth. That three is essential. This is where we crack open the code. Now you have the ability to understand not only all religion in a comparative sense, but mysticism is now available to you. In this case, through the study of the Kabbalion, but Take this awareness, develop this awareness, and, and take it into other fields. It's so liberating and so freeing. It means, essentially, there's two of you. There's what church calls the sinner, which I would describe as your egoic nature, your ego, the part of you that identifies with the mortal separated form. But then there's your higher self, your, your conscience. Where do you think your conscience comes from? That still, small voice, he goes, I, 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 what, what, hold on, what are you doing there, buddy? <laughs> Where does that come from? And you even had it when you were a little kid. When you really didn't know any better, you had this small voice saying, that's not right. Don't do that. How do children know that it's wrong to be sexually molested? Why are children so traumatized by what might appear to be a loving gesture? Because there's this eternal soul inside them that says, this is not right, this is wrong. All right? This is not about love, this is about power. This is about patriarchy. This is a misuse of material power, devoid of the higher power of true love, which is gentle and kind and certainly considerate, right? and protective of little children and the little innocents. Right? That's part of what's so perverse about rape and molestation. It's usually babies and little children 
or old people that get raped. It's not young, vital, strong people. It's helpless little children and helpless old ladies. Or helpless little boys and helpless old men. Because it's about power, not about sex. That's a very important understanding, too. But I digress. So do you get this idea? There's a uh, there's an old mystical riddle. I don't even remember where I got it anymore or who to give attribution to. But it's as old as time itself by all accounts, and it... Uh, it goes something like, what comes third, but stands as number two, and makes the three into a one? Isn't that cool? You should know the answer by now. It's the soul, the oversoul, the grand heresy, the idea that your soul's already in heaven, that you couldn't exist in physical form except that you are an extension of this soul that, as Plato said, shares the ground of God. The soul is a unit of the divine. It's, a, it's, it's God from a particular perspective or point of view. It is not separated. Your soul is not separated from the one life. It knows that it is the one thing, but it's got its own point of view. And to promote the growth of the one life, there is a soul. And to promote the growth of the soul, there is physical incarnation. To accomplish the mysteries, to accomplish the miracles of the one thing. That's the law of correspondence. As above, so below. The middle element, the magical element, the magnifying glass or the microscope or the telescope, the magnetic field around the polarities of the bar magnet that makes the three into a one. That's, that's where the magic is. That's where the mystery is. The nature of the soul. Which is third but stands as number two and makes the three a one. The father spirit manifests the mother matter from which spring a son or a daughter. It comes third, the son, an offspring of spirit and matter, but stands as number two and makes the three into a one, a whole thing. Now, Given the first principle we talked about last week, that all is mind, and the upcoming principles we'll talk about in Lessons 3 through 7, principle of vibration, of rhythm, of polarity, of gender, you're going to begin to understand how to wield or use this awareness. If you are a reflection of divinity, there's a responsibility, certainly an opportunity that goes with that. Because this is universal law that you can acknowledge and bring into 
your personal life. You understand that you are an agent of divinity acting on behalf of the one life. That's at once exciting and terrifying. It's it's awesome. God fearing doesn't ever doesn't mean you should be afraid of divinity or God or the absolute or the one life. It just means recognize how awesome the word awful is rooted in awe. That's awesome, dude. <laughs> it's not terrible. It's like, wow, really big and cool and far out. So, you know, when you talk about the terrible implications or the awesome or awful implications of this, I mean it only in the best sense. The opportunity that you have to act, if not like God itself, at least to model Jesus or Buddha or Gandhi or Dr. King or others who have walked this path and said there's more power in being gentle and loving and kind than you'll ever find in violence or money. That, too, is a heresy. What do you mean, more power in love? More power in being gentle and kind? Not me, buddy. Uh-uh. This is a you-or-me world, and I'm going to get mine, regardless of its impact on you. Well, live that life and see what happens. Look at the people who lead that life. Look at times that you pursued that philosophy and what happened to you. Okay. In our program, the premium audio program Steve and I do at our sister site, FocusedPassion.com, we just did a program last week on healing emotional pain. In fact, I had a little soundbite queued up that I was going to play for you today. and I got so involved in this, I, I failed to do that. But I'll, it's just a two or three minute bite. And I'll play it next week, talking about the emotional pain that we carry around. It's our pain. Nobody did it to us. You know, our fears and our anxieties and our depression and our our stresses and fears, it's all us. And we'll persist and we'll grow more and more horrible if we continue to identify only with the egoic self that is separated and not only different from, but even in opposition to others. That consciousness needs redemption. You can identify with the higher self, with the soul that's available to you now. If your soul, if as I say, the ancient and ageless wisdom of the mystical traditions of all cultures and all societies at all times in our history. Say the truth, the essence of who you really are is spiritual. And it shares the ground of the one life. It stands not only in form, but above and free of form in this middle place. The third element that stands is number two, between spirit and matter, between energy and mass, between the father and the mother aspect. 
If you identify with that self, you understand there is no separation. It's all illusion. When you hear some neophyte Eastern philosopher, somebody that discovered Buddhism a week ago, telling you that life is an illusion, you may want to say, well, what about it is an illusion? They ought to be able to tell you the appearance of separation is the illusion. The idea that two physical forms cannot occupy the same place at the same time, that's the illusion because these forms are actually a reflection or a manifestation of the non-dual, the formless spirit or energy from which all things flow. And it is the middle element that keeps them connected. The magnetic nature of love as consciousness allows the one to manifest as the many. It's all about magnetism. If you just begin to study love itself, even romance, baby, oh baby, not as a commodity, here, I'll give you love if you give me love, but rather as an electromagnetic field, you'll begin to understand this. But who's teaching you that love is not a thing or a commodity, but rather a magnetic field? You have to study metaphysics. You have to set aside an hour or two a week in your life to make sense of it. Right? Look, you're pretty exceptional people. The very fact that you're here or listening to this class via podcast makes you a pretty extraordinary person. So give yourself a pat on the back. And I don't mean that you're listening to me, that that that, that you're exposing yourself to all the good teachers, all the women and men in the field that are trying to expand consciousness and lift awareness from the appearance of things to, to the spirit that's essential and substantial behind the veil. Patronize them, honor them, study and make up your own mind. Always think for yourself. Right? Okay, let's go to the telephones, and I don't see any hands raised. Again, this is a time, if you want to speak on the phone, any one of you, ask a question, make a quick comment to do so. I'm not going to go past 2.30 West Coast time, 5.30 East Coast time. So, and I wanted to do a quick meditation, too. Let me check the Q&A real quick for people who are texting. Becky, don't know where Becky is, but she says hello and mahalo. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Becky. Carol Postel in the Habra, Aloha, Bob Fiegel in Irvine. These are the, all the good students that are here virtually every week. Great class, Bob says. Thank you, Bob. Uh, Phil Jaffe in Canoga Park. Oh, hold on. My site refreshed and took me away. This happens every once in a while. Let me go back. Thank you, Phil. Nice to hear from you. Greg Dzikowski in Avon Lake, Ohio, says, 
how does the development of consciousness and the development of the soul related? They're the same thing, Greg. Very good question. The soul is consciousness. Not the thoughts, not the feelings, but the field of awareness that can detach, step back, and look at your thoughts. Yeah. Have you ever been in that situation where you have a feeling or an awareness, but you, it, it was a thought even, but you couldn't find the right words to express yourself? And you may even have said to somebody, oh, if only I could find the right words. It means there is an awareness that transcends thoughts and feelings. Thoughts and feelings you can explain and find words for, but to wake up and look out your window and it's a beautiful day and to enjoy the feeling of, wow, it's great to be alive. You may not be able to find the thoughts or the feelings, but you're certainly aware of it. That's the higher self, that field of consciousness, part of the one field that people have trivialized and degraded into an old man on a cloud with a beard, and it's such a magnificent and beautiful and ancient, timeless concept. It's just a shame to see people say, well, I'm an atheist. I, you know, hear Bill Maher going on, making fun of poetry. But you never were supposed to take literally. You know, Bill Maher always goes on about the talking snake in the Garden of Eden. What does the snake represent? What does the apple symbolize? Come on. <laughs> what is the garden? The parent, Come on. <laughs> uh, Doreen's with us again this morning, my wife from down the hall. And she says, uh, loving this overview of the Kabbalion, especially the information on the Emerald Tablet and uh, Isaac Newton. Aloha to everyone. Thank you, dear. And... Uh, Let's do a quick visualization exercise. Thanks to everybody who's on the line and uh, and uh, also the people on the telephone today. I just have about 10 more minutes and I want to do a quick visualization. So if this is a good time for you, close your eyes and relax. Take a nice, slow, deep breath and as you exhale, ah, feel the relaxation. Feel the letting go in your body. Do it again. Take a second or a third slow, deep breath. Maybe a few head rolls and some shoulder shrugs just to get loose. And go to a beautiful place of perfect peace in the way you feel, allowing your emotions to become peaceful and tranquil. Still the water. Imagine the, the watery, fluidic nature of your emotions becoming calm like a little lake or a pond when its surface is as smooth as glass. And allow yourself to follow my simple narrative 
as your thoughts become more quiet and less demanding of your attention, more harmonious and even unified. Not through any effort, simply by allowing yourself to relax, to breathe and uh, let go with your eyes closed. And with your mind's eye, visualize, just imagine yourself in a really beautiful place of perfect peace, like a paradise or a garden. And though my voice goes with you and guides you, you can hear birds singing. You can hear the wind in the trees. You can smell the fragrances of nature in this beautiful and peaceful place. Consider that above you, though this is only a model, consider that above you is your source. Out there, somewhere, everywhere, an ocean of spirit, of energy, vibrating, oscillating with rhythm, dancing, singing, hear bells, harps, guitars, <laughs> drums, a heavenly chorus, a celestial choir of the entire universe like wind chimes vibrating. And imagine that peaceful consciousness precipitating down, trickling down into you and stand open and receptive to that downward flow. And at the same time, around you, imagine yourself effortlessly projecting, that is, releasing your good intentions your heartfelt aspirations for a better world, for you, for those you love, indeed for all of humanity, and the one life, the animals and the plants and the mineral kingdom that we often treat so harshly from our fear and ignorance. Imagine peace and love and harmony pervading the world around you as above, so below. Bringing heaven to earth, thy will be done on earth. And as below, so it is above. Yet you are that middle element, receptive to the spirit, causative to the material world. Receptive to the material world, harmonizing, communing with the one life. You are that middle element. You are a child of the universe. You are a part of the one thing. It could not be otherwise. Allow that harmony 
that peace, that love, that light, that ageless wisdom to penetrate and permeate every cell in your body, every little nook and cranny. And bring that with you back into the waking state. As you now breathe in, and as you exhale, relax even more. Do it again, nice, slow, deep breath, fill your lungs. And as you exhale now, open your eyes, wide awake, alert, back in the room, rested, refreshed, feeling fine, and having repositioned or reoriented yourself from an effect of life to the magician in the middle. You are the soul. In form, but above and free of form. Receptive and in alignment with spirit. Causative in the most harmonious way to the world around you. Well, thanks again for being here. I hope you will share this program and join us for Lessons 3 through 7 in the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Watch for the newsletter. Visit our website, theagelesswisdom.com. Remember the T-H-E after the W's, dot theagelesswisdom.com. And visit our sister site, FocusedPassion.com. If you like this class, you're going to love the studio quality version that my business partner Steve and I do. If you subscribe, it's only 99 cents, normally four ninety-five a program. Still a bargain, less than $5. Subscribe for three ninety-six a month. You're only paying 99 cents a week, and you can still forward those to your friends. Why don't you at least get a free account set up for yourself at FocusedPassion.com. Just click on the big button that says Get Free Sample Programs and leave your name, just your first name, if you if you want, and an email address, and you'll get an account at that website when you log in. A built-in audio player will have six free sample programs for you. And... Um, all of these programs are available at theagelesswisdom.com under the archives. Lots of free stuff for you. But if you can understand that this is all really a public service that's presented by the people that subscribe at the premium audio site for less than a dollar a week, um, that's really a wonderful thing for you to do. In the coming weeks, we're adding a feature, which is the Wisdom School Training. This wisdom class will always be here at 1 o'clock West Coast time, 4 in the East on Sundays, and the podcast will continue to be available. But we're going to add a training, and it's going to be very much like this Kabbalion. Instead of the lectures or speeches that I've done in all the past programs, different every week. We're going to do what we're doing now, bear down on a particular topic, a book, a concept, and provide for you at a very modest cost. Anywhere from $6.95 a show, if you buy them one at a time, to 
$3.27 if you buy the annual package. And that'll start in about five or six weeks. So stay tuned for more information on the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School training that'll follow the free mystery school effective in about a month and a half. Thanks a ton for being here. Really appreciate it. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Maui.